Um, let's pray, and we'll be in the book of Ephesians today. Chapter 1, look at the first two verses. But let's, let's pray and go to the Lord in prayer for his help. Oh God, we need your guidance. We need your help, Lord, as we go to your word, Lord. God, that we don't look at it in our fleshly eyes, God, in our own understanding, Lord, but through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Illuminate this text, Lord God. God, if I don't make things clear, Lord, I pray that as they leave this place, Lord, you by your Holy Spirit go and just reveal things and correct where things if I, that I may get wrong, Lord. God, use your word. Help us to come to an understanding of who we are positionally as saints, as holy ones of God. Let us come to a revelation and understanding of that, knowing your choice and election of us, Lord. Bless your name. Oh, God, will you bless the word that goes forward today? God, remove all distractions, Lord, we pray. All thoughts, all things that may be on my mind, my brothers and sisters' mind, I pray that you clear it, Lord God. Give them clarity, open their eyes, their understanding, just like you did with Lydia, Lord God, do it here today. In Jesus' name, his authority, we pray, amen. And my ultimate goal today, we really, we're only going to look at two verses, the first two verses. This is salutations, introduction, that's it. Um, but what I want you to leave today with, the ultimate goal, if this happens, it's a success, is to come away with an understanding of your identity as saints, as holy ones of God. That's what it means to be a saint, a holy one, a holy thing, hagias, holy people of God positionally. We're not talking about our works. I know we, we want to quickly jump to, or I need to do these things for God. This is living holy. Let's put that aside because we're, we're quick to always say, God, what can I do for you? Can we just sit back and receive? Can we sit back and just receive that we get this holiness status based on our association of being in Christ? Not so much, what do I need to do? But just receive God's grace and his blessing of holiness stature or status so so we'll look at today the book of ephesians we'll look at chap chapter one verses one and two with a focus on saints being a saint my stuff is on okay and let me see Um, yeah, I'll just do it. I was going to read the whole chapter, but timing, I don't want to go too long. So I'll just read the first two verses that I want to get in here. And the word of God reads, this is Paul, his letter to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, how? By the will of God. To the saints, or if you have another translation, it'll say, the holy ones who are at Ephesus, that's where our main focus, the saints, the holy ones who are at Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Look what Paul says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's opening salutation, his introduction to the people, the church in Ephesus. Really simple, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just some little information, background information on, on the book of Ephesians and, and this church who Paul is writing to. We see that Paul, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, Paul, he goes to Ephesus. He goes there with Aquila and Priscilla. He meets Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla in, um, I think it was Corinth. And they travel and they go to uh, Ephesus. And so that's, that's where, how they actually get to, to Ephesus. And Paul, he leaves Aquila and Priscilla. And this is all in Acts 18. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. And he goes back to his base church, which is the church of Antioch. So Paul had a home church. Like how we count Paul's missionary journeys is we count every time he went back to the church of Antioch, Antioch, that was the end of one missionary journey. And when he left out again, that was the beginning of another one. So anytime he goes back to his home church, his base church, that was the end of a missionary journey. That's generally how it counts. So Paul, in Ephesus, he leaves there, ultimately goes back to his base church, home church, Antioch. Then he comes back to Ephesus. He goes to Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts and he begins to preach the gospel there. Paul is there in Ephesus for two years preaching in the school of Tyrannus. He's preaching the gospel publicly there. Um, he's preaching the gospel from house to house. People are being saved. People are being converted um, drastically. They're throwing away their, their sinful deeds, their black magic, and they're coming to Christ. And now Paul is writing a letter to this particular church that he helped to establish through the preaching of God's word. So this is where we are in this book of Ephesians. This is how we got this church here, the book of Ephesians. Now, what I love about Paul, what he does in his letter to the Ephesians, um, Paul starts out by using the, we're going to get nerdy here, just to let you know, we're going to get technical later on, we're especially going to look at some Greek language because it's very important, but um, Paul, he starts off this letter to the church in Ephesus by using the standard Greek format. The standard Greek format was when you wrote a letter to someone, you would identify yourself first. That's how anybody wrote a letter during this Greek first century period. You would identify yourself first, and then you would give your title. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then you would generally identify the people you're writing to, your recipient, and then you would go and you would give their title as well. And so Paul, what he's doing, he's sticking to the language or the culture of his time. That's what I love about Paul. Paul was not afraid to use and embrace culture, good culture, to, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Also, let me make this other disclaimer I forgot to mention. I was watching a sermon last week from the brother that, that preached, and he said something about culture. Um, no, he says that sometimes preachers are using culture as a euphemism to point to the world. And I want to say, I'm not doing that. Um, that's not how I use the word culture. Um, I use culture as what we make of the world. I see culture as what theologians call in Genesis 1.28, the cultural mandate that we have this call to go and create culture, go and to make things of the world. And so when I say culture, I'm not necessarily saying the world because when we say the world, it often has a negative connotation. But when I say culture, you could be saying good or bad things. So just wanted to put that out there when how I'm using this term culture in a sense. And so Paul, what I love about him, as I mentioned, Paul, again, he's not afraid to use and embrace culture for the sake and the advancement of the gospel. So he's sticking here in this letter to the culture's way of writing and speaking. So he's not afraid, again, to mix it up. And you see this in Paul's letters all throughout. For example, in the book of Titus, 
you find Paul quoting a pagan prophet, right? He, he's understanding other groups, other cultures. He's quoting a pagan prophet. And in some of Paul's other letters, we often see him using cultural activities such as wrestling. We see Ephesians 6, when it says we not wrestle with flesh and blood in the Greek, that's actually a person who's locked arm in arm. He's talking about the wrestling of that day because that is the sports and activity that they use. So we see he uses that language. Or even in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 26, he uses track and field analogies. Why? Because that's what the culture did. That's what the culture knows. And so he would use those truths to um, communicate the gospel or to contextualize the gospel we even see Paul in Acts 17 quoting a pagan poet. I love it. Paul knows his poetry, y'all. He, he's quoting a pagan pro, a poet. So Paul was one. He was culturally aware. He was culturally relevant. And he used that for the, the sake of the gospel. He's quoting pagan poets. And, and I bring that point out because here's an inconvenient truth. If another Christian stood up like Paul and they quoted a pagan uh, poet, or even knew too much about poetry that was non-Christian, some of us, or many in the Christian world, would be condemned, would begin to condemn that Christian as being too worldly. But I don't think that that's what Paul would do, especially if those poems of what they're speaking on communicate a truth. One of my, my, my favorite songs is by, guess what, it's by a secular artist. I believe he's a secular artist. His name is Music Soul Child, and he has his song, and the song is called Love. And I just wanted to read you some of the lyrics of this song. It's called Love. It goes like this. It goes, Love, so many people use your name in vain. Love, those who have faith in you sometimes go astray. Love, through all the ups and downs, the joy and the hurt. Love, for better or worse, I still choose you first. See, in that song right there, there's a lot of truth in that song. There's a lot of truth that you can use to um, communicate the gospel or use it as a bridge for the gospel. So again, like Paul, he, he uses culture. He uses the, the customs of that day to begin to communicate his language to this church in Ephesus, which is largely made up of Jews and Gentiles. So this is what he does. And so when he begins this letter in the traditional Greek format, again, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul, in the beginning of this letter, he wants to make it known. He wants the church to know that his apostolic authority is not a man-made authority, but that his, his apostleship comes from God. Why? Because during this period, you had many fake apostles out there. You had fake apostles who were using the term apostle for their own personal or selfish gain. And so Paul is making it clear that, no, I have been called as an apostle by God. And we know that there were fake apostles out there because guess what? In the book of Revelation chapter 2, we see that the church in Ephesus, this same church, they were good at hunting out false prophets or false apostles. In, in the book of Revelation, um, the Lord says to the church in Ephesus, you're good. You, you know the false prophets. You try them. You find that they're not true, not real. So, so there were true apostles and there were these other false apostles. And so Paul is starting this letter and then making it known how he is an apostle. It's not that he, some church apostle, small a, like Barnabas may have been, but no, his apostolic authority, he's saying, comes from God. 
And, and we see that because as we look at the life of Paul, we've seen this guy set on fire with sharing the gospel, going place after place. And we see just looking at Paul's life that he has a special calling and anointing. And not only that, we, we know from the scriptures in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, when the Lord goes to Ananias and tells him that Paul is my chosen vessel. He's called by me. So we, we understand that Paul, yes, he has his apostolic authority, authority, the sent ones. It comes from God. It's by the will of God. And so Paul is making that clear. And there's another place, matter of fact, where he is really even direct to make it known that his apostolic authority comes from God. That's in Galatians 1.1. There Paul starts off by saying this, Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor to the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So there in Galatians, remember you had false apostles and prophets coming in, flipping up and changing the gospel. So Paul there is making it clear that I'm not one of those guys. My apostolic authority comes from the will of God. This is God. Now, Paul doesn't do this in this salutation, in this introduction, but in many of his other letters, such as Philippians and Titus, and not only he, you often find Paul and the other writers not only identifying their apostolic authority and their position in the church, but they'll often use another term. They'll self-identify as bond servants of Christ. Bond servants of Christ. So they'll also identify their apostolic authority, which we see Paul doing here. But in some of the other letters, not only Paul, but the other writers, they would also identify or self-identify as bond servants in Christ. And, and the point or the reason why I'm saying this is I want you to see that these New Testament writers, the foundation of who they are, their identity, that all that they were, the foundation was always in Christ. That was chief above everything. So they would start their letters by saying, I am an apostle of God. I am an bond servant of Christ. They were so in love with Christ and wanted to make it known that that was their opening salutation. When, when the people of their day, the pagans, will say, I am in the governor's army. I am this and that. These writers are saying, no, I am a soldier of the Lord. I'm a bond servant of Christ. So their identity was so wrapped up in Jesus. And I think that is so relevant for us because right now in society, society is pushing everything else as the foundation of our identities. The, right now, there's a major push to embrace your culture or your ethnicity as the basis of who you are or your political parties and ideologies. There's a basis right now in our society to put your sexual uh, uh, preference or affections as the base of who you are. Society is saying, yes, wave that banner. Make your foundation. Build your house on that identity. But no, we see here with the apostles and the other writers that their identity, your identity, who you are, the foundation has to be based in Jesus Christ. And so this got me to thinking, if I was going to write a letter to someone in the first century Hellenistic Greek style, what would be the title after my name? And what would be the title after my name before Christ? And what would be the title after my name after Christ, B.C. or A.D.? What would be your identity? Would your identity be as parents? My name is such and such, mother of these two kids or three kids. Would your identity be like it used to be for me? 
my street or the block I was from because I was from an area and I w would love to tell people where I'm from and even throw up the sign to show them where I'm from. I have my identity in there. Would your identity be in your ethnicity, your cultural heritage? I'm African American, I'm Latino, I'm Ukrainian, I'm Russian. Would your identity be in your political persuasions of uh, liberal and conservative? Would your identity be in your favorite sports team like much of the world? I'm a 49ers fan, I'm a Raiders fan. How would you self-identify in that letter? See, be before Christ, my title would be this. It would be Jerome, money over everything. It would be Jerome, the ladies' man. It would, it would be Jerome, Oakland's finest. It would be Jerome, lover of pride and lust. But now, if I was writing that letter in first century style, as Paul is doing to the Ephesians, it would be Jerome, disciple of Jesus Christ. It would be Jerome, the one the Lord loves. It would be Jerome, vessel of mercy. See, now the identity is wrapped in Christ. So church, what title would you have? What would that title be prior to Christ? And what would your title be now that you are in Christ? Would it be servant of Christ? Would that be your name? Your name, servant of Christ? Would it be lover of Christ? Or would it be something else? How would you self-identify in your letter? Would Christ be the basis? Now, if you don't have an idea of how you would self-identify in yourself in those letters, Paul here in Ephesians gives us a suggestion because as we see in the next part of verse 1, he says to the saints who are at Ephesus. So Paul uses the word saints to identify who the church is. He uses the one saints, and some of your Bible will say holy ones, these, these holy ones. So that, that is how Paul is going to self-identify the church. He says to the saints the holy ones, the set-apart ones, to the saints in Ephesus. That is how Paul identifies the church. Now, some of us, we have an abrasion to the word saint. We say saint and it sounds weird for some of us. Why? We, it's largely because the world has hijacked that word saint to be just this person that's just lived this extraordinary life. And also the word saint has been hijacked largely by the Catholic Church as well. And so I can imagine, especially if you were Catholic before, and now you come into Christ and you say that saint goes by my name, and, and that, that sounds foreign and weird to you. And that is why we, we, we maybe even wrestle with that word sainthood. But here's the thing. Sainthood in the Catholic Church and sainthood in the world is totally different from sainthood in the Bible. See, sainthood in the world or from the Catholic Church, if you will, it comes from, again, a person who lived in, in their eyes an extraordinary life or a person who lived a life of intentional poverty or, or intentional suffering and, and service to the poor. In society, when people say saint, Often people think of Mother Teresa, for example. They think of somebody who just lived this life. But again, that is not how your Bible identifies sainthood. That is not how the apostle is using this term again while in the world. Sainthood is derived from what you do, your actions in the Bible. Sainthood is derived by what Christ has done and your association to him. That is our sainthood. That is biblical sainthood. It's not in what you have done, but it's all what Christ has done, and you're standing in him. Or uh, another way of looking at sainthood is that sainthood ultimately comes by grace. 
It ultimately comes by God's election and his will. It's God's choosing of a group of people and calling them and making them holy. And it's not something that you go and do. You can't earn holiness. You can't earn sainthood. It is something that is bestowed upon you by your association to Jesus Christ. It's God's sovereign will and election to make you holy. And guess what? We find that this truth it permeates from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 6, when, when ancient Israelites are told, they're, they're told this. They're told that they are holy to the Lord and that God has chosen them to be his treasured possession. That is what the ancient Israelites were told, that they have been chosen to be God's um, treasured possession. And when you keep reading down in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse, and verse 7, the uh, Israelites are told that God's election of you is not based on your size, but it is just that God has set his love on you. It's not nothing you've done. It's just God and his sovereign will, his sovereign election, choosing you and grabbing you, saying that you are going to be a people to me, and by that you are holy. It's not because you've done anything. It's not that you're great, but again, it's God's sovereign election. It's his choosing that makes someone holy. It's his will. And that is the same thing in the New Testament. Our holiness status is not based on what we have done, but our association to Christ and God's sovereign election, just like with Israel. He chose Israel. He said, I'm calling you to be holy to me, to be saints. It's the same thing here in the New Testament. It's God's sovereign election. It's not based on what you have done. And if you want real life proof that it's not based in our works, guess what? Look no further than the church in Corinth, right? Look no further than the church in Corinth. Think about this. In the church in Corinth, here are some of the issues. Always, I know I'm always picking on the church in Corinth. <laughs> they had so many problems, just like we do as a church. But here are some of the issues that was happening in the church in Corinth. Um, the church in Corinth, they had a situation where there was a man basically sleeping with his father's wife, and the church was cool about it. Everybody knew it was like the secret that everybody knew. Everybody knew what was going on, and nobody in the church was saying anything. Everybody knew that she wasn't just being nice to this guy because she was trying to be a good mother-in-law, but they were, they were doing something. They were, they were together. So that was happening in the church. Not only did you have that happening in the church, and the church was tolerating that, but the church was also doubting Paul's apostolic call on one hand, and then you had others in the church who were almost idolizing Paul when they were saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, just like some of us do, including myself, with John Piper, Paul Washer, Francis Chan. We love some of those guys, and we almost closely idolize them if we're being truthful. And I know that's something I have to work on myself. But that's what they were doing. They were, they were idolizing Paul in some ways and some were doubting Paul's apostolic call. Not only in the church in Corinth, guess what? They were suing one another. Believers suing one another. So Paul had to write to them because to stop suing one another, stop going to unbelievers to, to settle your matters. He's like, isn't there anybody with wisdom in his church? So you, you had that in the church in Corinth. And so you had all of these things happening with this church in Corinth. But guess what Paul does in his letters to the church? He still calls them saints. Even though all of this mess, even though all this stuff that's happening, Paul still calls the church of the believers in Corinth saints. He still calls them holy ones. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. 
to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So sainthood, again, is not based on us. It's not based on our works. It's based on his works. It is through his work being in Christ that we enter into sainthood and now become one of God's holy ones. It's Christ's work and what he has done. And the question somebody asks is, okay, brother, why is this so important? Why do, why do you want me to get sainthood and understand that I'm a holy one of God? Why are you belaboring this point where Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus and he identifies them as saints? The reason I'm belaboring this point and really parking here at verse 1 about saints is because sainthood has everything to do with identity. And guess what? Identity affects your whole life. It affects your actions. It affects how you live. And not only does sainthood affect your actions and how you live, but sainthood, guess what? It affects or has implications on how we ought to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So it affects your life, how you live, your actions, your identity as a saint, and it also has implications on how we ought to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the first point, how sainthood affects your identity and how you live right now, presently, in the present. It's this. One of the, the, the most popular services right now in, in America is, I like to call it, ancestry, ancestry research. So if you, you, I'm sure some of you, you've seen that commercial from Ancestry.com, right? Where you can go and you can do this swab and you can find out about your, your, your great, 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 great grandmother times 10. You can find out about different friends. There's another one. There's a DNA service where you can find which country you probably originated from. Well, some of you, you guys know where you're from. I don't. I know the continent, but I don't know the place, right? Um, and so that, that is a real popular thing right now. People want to know about their heritage, their, their lineage. And if you listen to the commercials for these services, you will hear that people are concerned about their identity. And so that's the reason they're looking. They're, they're looking for their identity. They, they want to know who they are. Why? Because people, this is it. People, they're, they're looking to hear this story like this. They're looking to hear this. Oh, my great, 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 great grandfather was an Irish immigrant and uh, they came from being this poor Irish immigrant and to, to starting this massive business and this massive company and since I, I come from that same stock that that is in me too so so people are looking for this identity of who they are so that they can be inspired to live life now in the present or, or you hear other stories that I've heard where, where people are saying my, uh, my my great great grandmother was this poor seamstress who who sold everything that she could to come to America and, and she made this great life for her. And this perseverance that was in her is, is now in me. And so, again, people are looking at their ancestry, their history, their lineage for their identity of who they are. They're looking to be inspired by that identity so that it now has effect or bearing in the present. And, and so that, that is a common thing that is happening in society. People looking for identity through lineage and, and heritage and cultural heritage and ancestry. And, and if, if some of you watch the movie Black Panther, you will notice that in that movie Black Panther, 
the foundation of it was ancestry and heritage. That was the foundation of the plot of the movie. It was to recognize where you're from because you're from this place, because you have this, this, this lineage. You ought to do these things currently in, in the, the presence. And one of the main characters whose name was T'Challa, um, that was what he really focused on, his, his ancestry, his, his ancestors, his lineage, and, and how he comes from this. And because he's has this identity, it should now be bearing fruit or affecting what is happening in the present. And let me just kind of go on a tangent real quick, just a little side note. If you are not familiar with the movie Black Panther, I would say, and again, I'm always trying to just bring culture to you, to you all. Um, that's not a good thing. And, and I say that because I know some of you are going into black communities and you're sharing the gospel. And just like any other missionary or Brother Anthony, if you're going to go to any community, it's smart or at least wise to know something about the community, right? It's something to know. It's good to know the challenges they're facing. If you're going to go into a Latino community, you need to know what some of the challenges and the, and the things that they're facing so, what, so that you can contextualize the gospel to fit it to the situation that they're, they're dealing with. And so I bring this point out about Black Panther because outside of Obama's election, in the black community, this Black Panther movie was the biggest cultural moment in recent history. You'll go to most, almost any issue. She's not a man, she understands. This was such a big deal. And, and so, again, if you're going in these places, you, you want to know cultures. Just like Paul, when he went in Acts 17 to those pagans, Paul didn't just go in there blind. He was, going, he was in there quoting their people. He, he spoke their language so that he can contextualize the gospel to fit them. So you want to have that understanding. You want to understand the people that you're speaking to. So that's me off tangent. That's our little cultural moment. But back to, to our, our, our text. So again, we're seeing in our society right now, people are, are stuck on identity. And again, that was the basis of the movie Black Panther. And, and just even in, in, in some of the, in the black community I'm a part of, there's such a big emphasis on your ancestry and your history. You often hear grandmothers and great-grandfathers pointing to your uncles and aunts and how I see that that's from her and that's where you get it from. And because you come from this stock, you should be doing this in the present. So we see that ancestry and heritage Identity, it plays an important role in who you are and it can affect and will affect how you live in the present and the right now. Now, I have good news and bad news for us. The bad news is this. The bad news is that you come from a bad stock. You come from a bad lineage. And no, I'm not talking about maybe your family history. I'm not saying because you come from a, a family of criminals that you're going to be a criminal. But I mean this, the Bible says in Acts 17, 26, that he, meaning God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And that man is who? Adam. Adam and Eve is your true lineage. And Adam and Eve, guess what? They sinned. We know that, right? And that same sinful nature, that same sinful nature that was in your great, 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 uh, 
ancestors, Adam and Eve, that has passed on to you. That, that's what they passed on down from their lineage. That's your ancestral history. That sinful nature that was in them when they sinned in the garden has now passed down unto you. Which is why David says in Psalms 51.5 that I was brought forth in iniquity. Not that my parents did anything sinful to bring me about, but I'm born a sinner. I'm born broken. I'm born in rebellion. So we see, so when we see people in the world acting out, murdering and stealing and lying and fraud and, and pride, they get it from their parents. That's that Adamic lineage. That's that Adamic cultural heritage that's rearing its, its present ugly head or its ugly head in the present. Um, a few years ago, some of you will know this, some of you won't. There was a popular song by a rapper named Juvenile. V, I'm sure you know this one. Um, this song was called She Gets It From Her Mama, right? It was, a, it was a misogynistic song. Please don't go listen to it. It's horrible. Um, it's not a good song. But the point of the song was this, that there were certain traits that this lady had that the rapper was saying she got it from her mom, that it came from her mom, hence the song She Get It From Her Mama. And so... When I'm walking and living in society, and I see, for example, I'm not picking on women, but I'm just using this as an example. When I see women not displaying the, the, the characteristics of a godly woman as presented in scripture, you know what I'm saying in my head? She get it from her mama. Not her mother who gave birth to her, no. But her mother Eve, that same sinful nature that had its start in mother Eve, is now showing its face in her daughters who is doing the same thing. And that's the same thing with man. That, that's our lineage. That's our heritage. We see our heritage actually playing a role in the present. So that's the bad news. The bad news is that you come from a bad lineage, a bad stock. But here's the good news. The good news is that through faith in Jesus who he is, the son of God, what he has done, come down from heaven to live a life of perfect obedience to the father, to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, to resurrect three days later, and who is now seated at the right hand of the father, ruling and reigning through faith in that Jesus, you actually go from death to life, John 3.36. And guess what? You die to your old lineage and have been resurrected into a new family. So you go from this servant of sin, John 8.34, um, to heirs of the kingdom of God, Romans 8.15-17, and to become children of God, Galatians 8.6-7. So brothers and sisters, you are no longer in your Adamic lineage. You are now in this new lineage. And guess what? Just as Christ was and is the Holy One, which is why I had that verse, just as Christ was and is the Holy One of God, as spoken by Peter in John 6.69, um, and just as he is the Holy One of God, even spoken by the demon in Mark 1.24, guess what? You too are now the Holy Ones of God because you are in Christ. You are now saints. You are like Christ. You have been set a part. You have been sanctified for the purposes of God. That is who you are. That is your identity. That is now your lineage. Saints, holy ones of God, you are a saint, holy one. 
And this new lineage, guess what? And this new lineage that you're in, it doesn't matter what family you came from. It doesn't matter if you came from a line of high school dropouts for, or from a line of PhDs. It doesn't matter if you came from extreme poverty or come from a wealthy ancestral lineage. You now have this new lineage, this new cultural heritage, guess what? That trumps all other heritage. And that heritage is now saints, sainthood, holy ones. See, you now, guess what? You come from a lineage of, of a life of perfect obedience to God because that is what we see in the life of Christ. You come from a lineage of self-sacrifice because that is what we see in the life of Christ. You come from a lineage of service to the poor, the broken, the outcast, the one that society throws away. Why? Because that is what we see in the life of Jesus. You come now from a lineage of loving justice. Why? Because that is what we see in the life of Jesus. That is what we see in Christ. You now come from a lineage of commitment and faithful to one spouse because that is what Jesus taught. He was antithetical to divorce. See, because you are in Christ, that is now your stock. That is now your lineage as saints and heirs to the kingdom of God. You are saints, not because what you have done, but because God has shed his love upon you. Saints, this is where you are, believers. This is who you are. So we let the life, the lineage of Jesus Christ, we, we let that go and impact the present, just like what the people in the world are trying to do right now. See, believers, we have to stop identifying ourselves as sinners. Yes, there is a time and a place to do that, but you must understand you are in Christ now. You're no longer in Adam. You're not in Adam. You are in Christ and you are therefore a saint and a holy one of God. That is why the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Ephesians identifies the church that way. That is why he's identifying the Corinthians that way because they are now in Christ. He's looking at their new nature. He's not stuck on the old nature. He's saying because you are in Christ, this is who you are. Just letting the church know that they're holy. You're holy ones. You're saints, church in Ephesus. This is who you are. You are saints. You are faithful in Christ Jesus, church in Ephesus. You are holy ones. You are that holy thing that is set apart to God, church. You have to know this, believer. See, I can tell you this with my mouth. I, I, I was listening to a sermon by a pastor that said this. He said, I can go and say, hey, brother, there's a tarantula crawling on your, on your, on your arm. And you may be doing something else. Yeah, I know there's a tarantula crawling on my arm. Yeah. Until a few seconds later, you're like, oh, there's a tarantula crawling on my arm. That is when you fully get it. See, I can tell you that you're a saint, but it's only till you fully get this. When it comes alive and it warms your heart, then you will understand this privilege and this place that you are in, that you are now this holy one of God, that you are chosen and sanctified for his purposes. That is such a privilege, my brothers and sisters. You're saints. So sainthood has an effect on your identity. That is what I mean. It plays a role in your place in the present right now. The other point is, because we're all saints, we're all holy things, in the proper Greek meaning of that word, we should really watch how we treat one another here in the body of Christ. We should really watch what we say about one another here in the body of Christ. Because guess what, when you're talking to me, and I'm, not, and I'm talking to you, I'm not talking to a regular person. I'm talking to a holy one of God. I'm talking to a saint of God. 
And so I ought to watch how I'm talking to you. I'm talking to God's purchased possession. I'm talking to the, the bride of Christ. I have to watch how I treat you. I have to, I have to watch how, how I talk to you. Why? Because you are, you are saints. You are holy ones unto God. May I remind you of this? Do you recall in the Old Testament, before the temple was built, when they had the mobile temple, I want to call it, it was like a tent. Do you remember the vessels in the temple? The cup. I mean, the, uh, the light stand, the altar, the table. What were those things called? They were considered to be holy vessels. Why? Because they had it sanctified and set apart for God's purposes. They were considered to be holy vessels. Regular people couldn't even touch those things. Why? Because they were holy and set apart for God's purposes. Matter of fact, when you go in the book of Numbers, the sons of Kohat, guess what? It was their sole responsibility to transport the holy things. God chose a family for the purposes of just transporting the holy vessels. That was your job. Because they were so holy that your only job here is to transport these holy utensils, these, these holy vessels that belong in the temple. And so that was the whole responsibilities of the sons of Kohat. As a matter of fact, in, in Numbers chapter 7, verse 9, it said that the sons of Kohat carried the service of the holy objects on their shoulders. Why? See, the light stand, the, the table, it was not an ordinary thing. It was not something that people would just commonly use. Why? Because those tables by Moses, it had been anointed. It had been sanctified, and now it was set apart as service for the, for the Lord. Guess what, believers? You are more worthy. You are more better than just, just a table. You've got to understand that. You are just like those holy vessels where, that the sons of Korah had to make sure they took special care of. You are these holy anointed vessels of God that have been anointed and sanctified and set apart for God's services. Not every, every object was used for that purpose. It was only a few objects and those objects were considered to be holy and sanctified and set apart from God. And now God is saying, that is how I think about you. You're my holy ones. You're my saints. You are the ones that I'm using. I'm choosing you out of the world. I'm setting you apart. I'm sanctifying you. I'm using you for my services and my purposes. Believers, that is such a privilege. Oh, Lord, I pray that you get this. That you... Saints. So the Apostle Paul, he reminds the church of that in this letter. He tells them, beginning of it, you're saints, church. You're saints, church in Ephesus. He not only reminds them of their status as saints, but Paul also acknowledges their faithfulness in Christ. Because he says here in verse 1, he says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now just a little little side note here. In your Bible you will see that there's probably a letter or a number by the word at Ephesus because in some of the oldest manuscripts Ephesus is not actually in there. And so some theologians say this may have been a general letter and not necessarily to the Ephesians but I don't want to confuse you but just I just wanted to throw that little side note out there for those who are um, the Bible nerds I know that you are and I say that in a good way. So Ephesus is not in some of the oldest manuscripts, but in some of the best manuscripts, the word Ephesus is there. But whether Ephesus is there in the letter or not, 
Regardless, it would have been extremely hard to remain faithful in Christ at Ephesus. That, that would have been a, a major challenge, whether that's in there or not, because you got to understand, in Ephesus, the people in Ephesus, they love their god, Diana, right? That's what the Ephesians were known for. The goddess Diana um, Artemis. As a matter of fact, her temple, the, the temple to Artemis, was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, meaning that people came from all over the world, just like people may go to China to see the Great Wall of China. People came all over the ancient world. They would come to Ephesus just to see this beautiful building with all of its architecture. It was considered to be one of the, the, the seven uh, wonders of the world. And so Ephesians, that's what they were known for. The Ephesians, they found their identity in this goddess Artemis. And so that's why it was such a major um, right when the Apostle Paul came there preaching the gospel. See, in Acts 19, when, when the Ephesians were rioting, they weren't rioting necessarily that Paul was preaching the gospel and, and telling people about Jesus. This was a very pluralistic society. Pluralistic society, I mean, they believe in multiple gods. If Paul was saying, yes, you can believe in Jesus and you can have Diana, there would have been no problem. The problem with Paul's gospel is that he was doing what Sister Dorina was saying. He was preaching an un inconvenient truth by saying that, all other gods are no longer gods at all. That only Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that is what caused such of an uproar to where we find in Acts 19 that the people of Ephesus are now rioting. They're going crazy. And they're saying, we, they're saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Why? Because they have their own whole identity tied up in this person, Diana. So imagine if you are a Christian in Ephesus. Your whole life you've been worshiping Diana and so many other gods. And now you're turning away. All of your neighbors still worship Diana. All of your friends still worship Diana. Your whole city worships Diana. And now you are coming and saying that Diana is not a god but only Jesus. See, it had to be hard to remain faithful in Ephesus. And so that's why Paul is here. He's, he's, he's acknowledging the faithfulness of the church in Ephesus. In the midst of all of this that's going on, they're remaining faithful in Christ. And so that's, that's something he's acknowledging. And now I know in this text I'm highlighting Ephesus struggles, but I also want to point out this. There's a tendency in Christianity in us to only say, well, the churches in the third world countries, they are the ones really suffering persecution. It must be so hard for them. And we often discount the challenges that we face here. But you must understand the challenges that churches are facing in third world countries, yes, they're, they're dealing with violence and, and physical persecution, but the challenge that we are facing here, which is really difficult as well, is, is the challenge of comfort. See, it's, it's can I be a Christian in the midst of all this comfort? Can I stay faithful in Jesus when at just one click of my finger I can go to Netflix and watch a whole show and waste six hours of my life with just one click I can go on YouTube and Instagram. I have food and all these amenities around me. I got everything I need. It's very easy in the environment that we live to not remain faithful in Christ because we have so much around us. We are such a wealthy nation. And you see that with the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Remember, they were a wealthy nation. That's who we most relate to It's a church in Laodicea. They were this wealthy nation. They had all of this, this, this money. They were good. And because of that, their wealth and their comfort actually stopped them from remaining faithful in Christ. And so that is, that is one of our major challenges here is staying faithful to Christ in the midst of all of this, in the midst of air conditioning, in the midst of not having anybody come knock on our door to, to tear it down. Can I, can I remain faithful to Christ when I, when I got it so good? 
See, that, that is the challenge that we face here in our country or in here in Sacramento, just like the church of Laodicea. So I, I wonder if, if, if the apostles could come and write us a letter, would they say to the church in Sacramento that are faithful in Christ, or would we get the same rebuke as the church in Laodicea? What would they say? Are we remaining faithful to Christ in the midst of this comfort? Like the Ephesians were doing in Ephesus, remaining faithful there at that place in the midst of so much chaos? That's a question that we all have to think on. And finally here in this text, the Apostle Paul, he ends, at least in verse 2, where we're ending with Paul offering blessing. He's offering blessing here in verse 2 where he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One, I want you to see that Paul, you see the equality of the father and son here. You see that he's saying that the blessing is flowing from the father and Christ and the son. So we see Paul putting the son and the father on co-equal planes and saying that the blessings are flowing from them. So that's just one little tidbit of note that we see here when Paul is making that blessing request. But we also see that he's, he's reminding the church the center of all blessings, they don't come from things outside of Christ and God. That, that they are the source. They are the ones to who blessings flow. That blessings and peace, that grace, that that all flows from the heart or from the person of God the Father and Jesus Christ. So he's reminding the church where blessings come from, come from and he's praying or warning them to be overflowing in the abundance of God's grace and blessings. And Paul does this, guess what, in almost all of his letters. If you go and do your own study, look at all of Paul's letters, he says, grace and peace, grace and peace. That's, that's called common salutation. Now, when you, when you see Paul do that throughout all his letters, it's easy to say, well, maybe Paul is just kind of using those words flippantly, that he's not being very thoughtful, that he's just saying grace and peace just as we say hello and goodbye. But no, Paul is very thoughtful when he's making his salutations to the different churches and the people that he writes. And, and, and the reason that we know that is that we can look at Paul's salutation to Timothy. In all of Paul's letters, he says grace and peace to you. But in the book to letter to Timothy, he doesn't say grace and peace. But in this letter to Timothy... He says, grace, peace, and, or grace, mercy, and peace. He adds mercy in the letter to Timothy. Why? Because in Timothy's case, Timothy's a, a person who's struggling with his faith at the moment. Timothy's struggling with his calling. And Paul knows that what Timothy needs is some mercy. So Paul is very conscious. He's very careful and calculate with his words. He, 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 he's aware of what the church needs. And so when he says grace and peace, again, Paul is very thoughtful and, and hopeful that he wants him to know more of God's grace and peace. And so when he tells Timothy mercy, he understands what Timothy is going through. And so he's praying that Timothy receive some mercy. So don't see this as just Paul just saying something, just using words or just using a common opening saying. But no, Paul is very conscientious of his words. And it is his true heart's desire that this church in Ephesus be filled with the knowledge of God's grace and peace, that this church overflow in the knowledge of God's grace and peace. So he, he, he's very aware. Now, in my research of this phrase, grace and peace, what I've come to find is that Paul, 
and the other Christian writers, when they were using this phrase, grace and peace, they were actually being unorthodox or they were actually being countercultural. Why? Because at this time, the culture, the way that you would write a letter, you would traditionally identify yourself, you would identify your title, you would identify the recipient and their position, and then you would start off your letter by saying greetings or the Greek word um, Karen. That's what you would say. You would say greetings or the Greek word Karen. And we see this in James' letter. James' letter starts off like a typical secular letter. He doesn't say grace and peace, but in James 1.1, he uses the Greek word Karen. So James starts off by saying greetings, which is common you would see just in secular language. Also in Acts chapter 15, verse 23, the Jerusalem Council. Do you remember when the church was kind of debating on if we should circumcise the Gentiles or if the Gentiles would have to be circumcised? Once they made a decision, they sent a letter on with the Apostle Paul to the other church. And in that letter in Acts chapter 15, verse 23, the council opens that letter by saying, greetings, just like a secular person would say, Chorazin. But what Paul does, and this is what I love about Paul, what Paul does and some of the other writers later, they actually twist that Greek word, chorazin, to point to God's grace. Paul, what he does in this letter here, when he says grace and peace, the word grace is the Greek word um, charis. See, the Greek word, secular word for greetings is Karen. Paul changes that word. This is a pun. This is why I did that Hebrew language class with you guys. Paul changes that word of Karen to charis, meaning grace. So they were just saying greetings, but Paul is now using the culture's language. So he's being culturally relevant. He's using the culture's language and he's flipping it to point to God's grace by saying charis, which is beautiful. And so Paul in this letter by saying grace and peace, he's actually, he's pulling from Greek culture or Hellenistic culture, and he's also pulling from his Hebraic culture, which the word is shalom and peace, and he's bringing them together to make something new, Christian culture, by saying grace and peace. This is why I say Paul was so culturally relevant, yet counterculture at the same time. He's using the culture's language, but also bringing it together to twist it to point to God. That is beautiful. And that is what Paul and many of the other Christian writers were doing. And one of the closest places you can see that church, and you guys know it's coming, is in Christian rap. You guys know I'm a Christian rap fan. But Christian rap, they, they do the same thing. They go and they borrow the culture's language, right? The culture right now is not listening to 1960s folk music, right? They're listening to hip-hop rap. So they go and they take the culture's um, medium and they're countercultural by changing the message to point to Christ and the gospel. They're doing the same thing that Paul is doing here in this opening salutation. That is why I love the genre of Christian hip hop. It's so culturally relevant yet countercultural at the same time. And so that is one of the beauties of what we see that Paul does in this letter. Paul is so aware. He so understands what's going on and he's going to use every bit of knowledge that he has to point to Jesus, to relate to his audience, and to share the gospel of God. So that is what he's doing just right there in his opening salutations. So Paul is praying. To the, that the Ephesian church experiences more of God's grace and peace. And I want to give you this last little note. If you are ever in a time crunch, if you're ever in a time crunch and you don't have a long time to pray, 
and you want to pray for your brothers and sisters, one of the best things that you can do is write what the Apostle Paul did. You can just pray and say, God, may your grace and peace come upon my brother. When you don't got time to pray, maybe you got to run, you're behind. That is just the simplest prayer that you can pray for me or for any other brother. May God, God, may my brother or sister abound in your grace and peace. Because that is sufficient. As Paul says, God is sufficient. That grace is sufficient. So you can just pray that simple little prayer. Grace and peace. And that is sufficient. Now I want to I land this plane with a, with a personal application. Um, as I was studying this text... I asked the Lord, I'm like, I'm going through my struggles with work, my family life. It's really tough for us right now. And I'm like, God, I'm intellectually understanding my sainthood and I love it, but what does this have to do with right now in this real life situation I'm facing with God? I'm, I'm struggling, Lord. I have this burden. I got all this pressure on me. I'm dealing with anxiety over here and this over there. And what does that have to do with, what does this sainthood have to do with what I'm dealing with right now in 2019? And and the Lord reminded me that because I am one of his holy ones, his saints, that no one will be able to pluck me out of his hand. And, and the Lord reminded me that just like a precious diamond that somebody's gripping, I'm God's purchased possession. I'm his saints. I'm, I'm his holy ones. This, like I said, the scripture says that we are God's purchased possession. We're brides of Christ. And so he reminded me, you're my holy one. I got you. And, be, and because I'm one of his holy ones, I know that nothing can separate me from his love. That's what he reminds me. Because I'm a saint, his holy ones, there's nothing going to separate me from his love. And because I am one of his saints, his holy ones, I know that he will work all things for my good and to his glory. Why? That's what I'm one of his saints. I'm one of his holy ones. I'm one of those vessels that are set apart for his purpose. So brothers and sisters, yes, this is just the only two verses in Ephesians that we're looking at today, but I want you to come away understanding this position that you have as saints, as holy ones of God, set apart ones, not by anything that you have done, but because you are in Christ. Christ alone gives you holy saint status. Nothing you've done. Rest in that. Go home before you get on. Yes, I need to do all these things for the Lord. Just rest in who you are right now. Right now in Jesus, positionally before God, you are considered holy. You are a saint because of Christ. Rest in that. This is your identity. This is your lineage. This is who you are. Let this be the basis for how you live and operate in this world. You're a holy one. You're a saint. So we will... Pick up next week. Uh, we'll hit verse 3. We're going to get into some heavy stuff. We're going to get into God's sovereign election, uh, his will. We're going to get in blessing the Lord. Our Paul starts off in verse 3 just blessing God. We're going to look at uh, six or seven reasons why we should bless the Lord as we go to following Paul and every reason why he's saying we should bless the Lord. So the book of Ephesians is an awesome book. We're going to grow higher in God through it. So amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth, Lord. God, we thank you for this special calling upon us as your holy ones. Lord God, we thank you. We know how you see us. 
oh God, help my brothers and sisters along with myself to remember who we are when the enemy attacks and gives us doubts and tells us lies about who we are. May we remind him that we are saints and we are your holy ones because of Christ Jesus. Look, God, I pray that your word, Lord God, stays on the hearts of my brothers and sisters, Lord. Oh God, bring them into an understanding of this identity of who they are, that they walk with you and understand that they are in you. Bless your church, Lord God. Bless your word. In your name, yes, Lord. Amen.